Hey, hey, it's Kiss. You're listening to Ergo here on WHBK, ergoradio.com. What we do, as always, is celebrate and showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and the more creative. We have a very special show for you today. But first, a couple community announcements looking at stuff happening across the city this week. First off, that's tonight, Thursday the 17th at the Westside Justice Center. There's an open conversation called On the Table, giving folks uh, who have been or have family members or someone they know who've been incarcerated the opportunity to come together and talk about that experience and and the experience of coming back home and figuring out how to return to the people that they love and the communities that they are of. So that's the 17th at the Westside Justice Center, 601 South California. Tomorrow night, that's Friday night at Trap House Chicago out south, 7955 South Ashland, is the fifth edition of the People Say Open Mic series. Uh, the Trap House is an amazing clothing store and community space run by uh, Mashawn Ali. I had the honor of DJing down there a couple months ago. It's a blast. You should definitely come through and support. On the 19th, we got a couple of different events happening. There is an industry, music industry workshop being put on at Treehouse Records that's out uh, kind of northwest, 4808 West Wrightwood. And it's an opportunity for folks to learn about how to build a career and a life in the music industry. So all kinds of makers, from photographers to journalists to graphic designers to artists, um, will be coming together and there'll be presentations and chats and a live podcast. And all of the proceeds go to an organization called Our Music, My Body. So that's on the 19th at Treehouse Records. And then lastly, on the 21st, put on by the American Friends Service Committee is No More Copaganda, The Dangers of Community Watch. You might hear about neighborhood watches in different neighborhoods. So it's people who live there, you know, supposedly keeping an eye out and making sure everything's okay. For the most part, these 26 organized community watch programs all over the city are funded by the police department, as you might have been able to guess. So learn more about the way these programs work and the ways that, you know, we see more and more in the news These programs are unjustly and expectedly targeting folks of color, specifically black folks in the city. That is on the 21st at 637 South Dearborn. All right, so this week on the show, uh, we get to share something a little bit special with you. You know, you may get tired of hearing our voice from time to time, so we got a whole bunch of new voices. We've been working for the last, I don't know, a couple months, I guess, with Free Spirit Media, a youth media nonprofit located on the west side in North Lawndale. We did a podcast training with their Real Shy Youth Newsroom, and we helped them design and produce a new show. So today, we bring you the first episode of In the Loop at the Blue, Real Shy News, a show produced by the Real Shy Youth Newsroom at Free Spirit Media with the help of Damon and me here at Ergo. Enjoy. What's up, guys? This is Ebony Ellis. This is Arlana Chicago. Hi, it's Bree Madden. Hey, this is Pascal Sabino. I'm Chelsea Berry. We are The Real Shy. In the loop, out the blue. Real Shy is a podcast reclaiming community journalism on Chicago's west and south side. We are reporting on people over institutions. The Real Shy is a project under Free Spirit Media. Take a ride with us. The Real Shy Newsroom. Next stop, the headlines. 
Hey everybody, this is Pascal Sabino coming at you with our weekly headlines. This is Ebony Ellis. Hi. We're going to be taking a look at some of the major events that have happened this past weekend and last week. Let's jump right into it. In Palestine, the Israeli military killed at least nine Palestinians in their crackdowns against uh, the six weeks of nonviolent protests, uh, what they're calling the Great March of Return. In total, that makes it 31 people uh, killed in the, the past few weeks. Now, this story, uh, it really hits home because it mimics a lot of the experience that black folks in America have dealing with police. If you ask me, it's the same thing, violence against Palestinian folks and violence against black folks. Most definitely. Same types of police training, same types of like ill-conceived perceptions of brown folks. Exactly. Right. Now, what I wanted to read is a, um, a quote from a piece that Chicago's own Vic Mensa published in Time. He called it what Palestine taught me about American racism. He said, staring into the worm-infested water tank on top of a dilapidated house and the Ida refugee camp, I can't help but think of Flint, Michigan and the rust-colored lead-poisoned water that flows through their faucets. Now, I think Vic Mensa, he's a rapper, but my God, he put it so beautifully because it's not just about the physical violence enacted in Palestine. Mm-hmm. It's also about the structural violence, the exactly. conditions which that violence is going to happen. I actually think the example with Flint, Michigan, is m- more so fitting. All right. Well, on a brighter note. Thank goodness. Right. It's been a great <laughs> week for music. We Ooh. had the, you listened to the Weekend album? Yes. How is it? Oh my God, I loved it. It's like, it was almost like a time machine back to 2012. What was his, one of his very first mixtapes? I'm like, oh my gosh, he's back. He's really back. A bell who hurt you. Never mind, we know. All right, then we had um, Azalea Banks released her Anuin tour track. Um, I have conflicted feelings about Azalea Banks, as you know. I don't really listen to her. I just know she's been trolling these last few years, and she's we've been hearing about her sacrificing chickens. So, um, sacrificing chickens. No comment. <laughs> Bless her soul. All right, but you if, know? if the music's good, if the music's good, the music's good. Speaking of which, Cardi B. She finally released her debut album. I listened to it this morning. It's fire. (laughs) Like, I highly recommend it. She really owned the week. It's funny because my Lyft driver was actually playing a few of the songs. I was like, okay, yes. It's amazing. How can you listen? People might have different, I don't know, like, opinions about her personality. But the girl, the girl can hustle. She's doing her thing. She, She is. You're giving her business. Yes, you're listening to the song. You bought the album. I aspire to have haters like like Barty. For real. I really do. Last thing is the new Drake music video, Nice For What. Incredibly vi- incredible visual piece. Like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of just black excellence, black women. But um, just when I saw Zoe Saldana, I got a little confused. I'm like, wait. Thing. We let her be black again, but we're okay. we're forgiving people. Fine. Issa Rae was glowing. Like, Issa Rae's yes. always glowing. I don't. She can't even claim the awkward black girl thing anymore. She really She's, can't. So then we had Yara Sahedi, Tiffany Haddish. It was amazing. Yeah. So great week for music. Uh, moving on to some darker news again. Oh man. Uh, April fourth was the fiftieth anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King and uh, the riots that erupted in the wake of his death. Now that is such an important story for Chicago and for North Lawndale in particular because at that time Dr. Martin Luther King was residing in North Lawndale. My mother actually was only four years old when all of this was taking place, mm-hmm. and she and my grandmother. And my aunts were actually living on the west side. Mm-hmm. So. so a lot of the reporting actually says that the reason why so much of the west side is 
you know, underinvested, underdeveloped. They say a lot of that is because of all of these um, these riots. Businesses were destroyed, uh-huh. investment and stuff was pushed out. So they're saying that 50 years later, there's this legacy of underinvestment in the West Side because of all of those riots. People are doing the best that they can with what they've got. Now, I do think people should invest more into the West Side because there's just a lot of rich history, especially within the North Lawndale area. Mm-hmm. And it's wiped away, right? Exactly. My issue is that immediately the first thing we want to talk about mm-hmm. is hopelessness. If the only thing we want to talk about when we talk about Martin Luther King on the West Side and the riots that happened, we don't want to talk about how revolutionary it is exactly. for people to come together and rise against a police state that literally had our leader assassinated. That's revolutionary, right? Of course. But the only thing we want to talk about is the riots and the poverty and stuff that persists later, even though... We know that that poverty... We know of that. And just constantly speaking of that, it's not going to do any good. Exactly. We know that. And we know that so much of the reason why that exists isn't because black folks destroyed our own neighborhood. Right. You're actually able to see a lot of the radical things that people are trying to do mm-hmm. to overcome this, the cards that they're given. There's not much opportunity in a neighborhood like North Lawndale, but people do incredible things to overcome that. And I think that's that's the stories I want to hear. And I think that so many of those stories can be directly tied to the work that Dr. Martin Luther King did in the neighborhood. Exactly. We also need to just work on make, make helping more people get aware of these things. If you want to check out one story that's about um, the revitalization of uh, the West Side, specifically in the North Lawndale community, you should check out our reporting from our fellow RCY journalist, uh, Ariel Walton. Hey, girl. She uh, made this incredible video piece that's about why the Nichols Tower, which used to be the Sears and Roebuck Tower, um, Sears and Roebuck Company had their warehouses and their main offices in the North Lawndale neighborhood. But when they started disinvesting, pulling out all their factories and facilities, the neighborhood really suffered. Her piece speaks for itself, but check out her piece at freespiritmedia.org. Our next, uh, and actually our last uh, little headline for this past week is um, really just a response to a column that I saw on the Tribune. Um, it was on the, the front the front of its website. It was a opinions piece called Frame by Frame, Takeaways from a Careful Look at University of Chicago Police Shooting Video, uh, written by their reporter, Eric Zorn. Ugh, you, you spent your time mm. just formulating an argument to remove the feelings that people have about a systemic issue that's far beyond this individual incidence of somebody, a student, a young person, a child getting shot by a police officer. I you, really want to ask the ethnicity of this person, but I feel like I already know. Right. Take a guess. Hmm. I don't even want to talk about his argument. The fact is that he decided to make an argument as to why people's fury is not legitimate. Non-people of color, you know, at this point, I feel like we just have to stop expecting for them to understand. But the fact that this this particular voice was elevated to such a status is very surprising to me. It is. And just the whole watching it frame by frame thing. um, Right. I have legitimacy mm. in this argument because I watched it frame by frame. Come on. What does that mean? Were you you there? For me, it's not even a matter of was the police officer justified? Like, did we, you know, we saw what happened or whatever. It's a systemic issue. And to take something structural, something that, you know, it's not about it's not about whether or not this kid looked dangerous. It's about. Was that police officer predisposed to think this kid was dangerous exactly. because of how he looked? Uh-huh. To to 
completely ignore this conversation that's being had and to just kind of zero in on this point that you want to make when you you should you shouldn't even have a seat at the table you know exactly you shouldn't even be talking about this because this isn't your story that just pissed me off that somebody used their voice to take away somebody else's voice when they have their job is to be a voice their job is media their job is to hopefully to uplift people and to you know give people that information and that power to engage in the world but you chose to disengage you chose to take somebody's power away you right you right oh lord that's all we have for the headlines next stop is our shout outs and announcements with miss ebony ellis hey that's me This stop here is shout outs and announcements. And this is the segment where we just let you know some of the good work that's being done around the neighborhood. So first off, just shout out to Douglas Branch Library in the North Lawndale area. Just there's a lot going on this month. So shout out to you guys. So starting off, Douglas Branch Library is actually partnering with Greater Chicago Food Depository, a healthy student market. It's on the first and third Tuesday of every month, starting April 3rd. And the next one will be this month on the 17th. And there's going to be fresh produce, you know, little non-perishables for you guys. And so it's from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. And for more info, just contact Douglas Branch Library. And the next thing, they're also partnering with City Bureau for a live tweet training. You're going to be learning the basics of just using Twitter, documenting events, public meetings, things of that such. And that's going to be April 24th from 5.30 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. And it's National Poetry Month, you guys. You know, just shout out to all the amazing places in Chicago that's going to be hosting, you know, amazing events, poetry readings, open mics, all sorts of stuff. Just, you know, find one, listen to some dope poets, you know, share your own work, be inspired, get inspired. And with that being said, at Douglas Branch Library on April 17th, there's going to be a poetry slam. And the performers will be ages 14 and up. And that is from 530 to 730 in their auditorium. So be there. And it's been a lot going on with, you know, CPS lately. And just shout out to the student protesters. Y'all are doing a lot of great work, making a difference We see y'all, we hear y'all, and we really do stand with y'all. And last but not least, shout out to one of our former reporters, Quinn Riley. She's just doing amazing things, putting together events, and they're specifically designed mostly for young mothers, expected mothers at that. So one coming up on May 6th, she is going to be participating in an event called It Takes a Village, and that's a free community event for young mothers and their families. And there's going to be vendors, and there's going to be food and various performances. So that is the shout-outs and announcements, and just shout-out to everyone who's listening. Merchandise Mart is next. All right, everyone, this is The Deep Dish, where we'll be taking a deeper look into the stories that we've been covering these past couple of months. I'm Arlana Chicongo. I've got Pascal Sabino with me, and we've got a special guest in the studio today, Rachel Williams. Hey, Rachel. Hey, thank you for having me. Of course. So um, today we're going to be talking about some of the things we've been covering the last few months, uh, the various protests, sit-ins, and walkouts by some of the students at Harper Hope Robin. 
Robeson and Team Englewood. For anyone that isn't aware, those are the four Englewood high schools that are supposed to be closed um, within the next few years. And uh, that's kind of been a big topic of interest within the education sector. And the students have been extremely vocal about their feelings about what's going on. Um, So, yeah, we're just going to kind of break it down, step outside of our reporting and just really talk about what this experience has looked like for all of us. Uh, Rachel, can you tell us a little bit about yourself just so the audience um, has some context? So my name is Rachel Williams. Again, I am a John Hope alum. I graduated in the class of 2009. I'm from the 10th graduating class of the high school. So understanding that it's 2018 and understanding that that's only nine years. Um, I've been organizing for, wow, a really long time. I started with, like, anti-gun violence, um, hands up, don't you, I want to grow up, that kind of campaign. And then I moved into political. And now, for the last four or five years, I've been back in community organizing. And uh, how long have you been organizing with the students at Hope? Well, I've been organizing with the students at Hope since December, actually. When CTU won their contract a couple of years ago, um, I tried to get Hope on the list to be what they call a community sustainable school. And I've been working with uh, and trying to get them on this list with BYP. Um, and then I took a le- leave of absence from like really organizing for a while after my little cousin was killed last year. Um, and then when they made the announcement in December, I was like, OK, now let's hit the ground running. Let's get this work done. And I started organizing the students at Hope. Yeah, and they really did like hit the ground running because that's when I really started covering CPS. And one of the first events that I was at was the sit-in that happened December at the CPS headquarters where a lot of the students weren't being let into the chambers. Right. So that week, I fa- we found out about it. Um, the Hope students were not present at that one because nobody had reached out to Hope. And I was trying to get Hope students there. Jakiah Jackson, who was the original organizer who staged the walkout, when CPS had their hearing that day, Hope had a walkout. The Hope students decided to do a walkout. They were like, no. And their slogan was, keep Hope alive. Mm-hmm. And they worked off of the Jesse Jackson presidential campaign in the 80s. And so they... Did this action in front of the school, had folks honking and, you know, supporting. Jakiah was the first kid I met at Hope this school year. I was up at Hope on, on a Monday. It's like, hey, what, what needs to be done? And one of the kids was like, oh, well, it's this freshman who's trying to do something. I was like, all right, bet. Put me in contact with her. I get a text message from this, this freshman, and she's like, oh, hi, my name is Jakiah. I was like, so what's up? And she was like, well, when, you know, I haven't been at Hope that long. I've only been here for maybe a month. And one of the things that I'm tired of seeing is that white folks taking stuff away and not thinking that we're going to fight back. And this is like within three text messages from this freshman, I'm like, oh, crap, you really about something. Let's do something. There was contention about the walkout then uh, when they did their walkout. Their walkout got no media, but the tribe. The tribe was the only one who covered it, um, which is a black, you know, up and coming. They mm-hmm. just had their one year anniversary. They're the only ones who covered their walkout. And that was the day I found out I was like actually banned from campus because the principal had gotten word. And I guess the principal trying to save his ass um, felt like, OK, I'm going to ban you from campus, which hurts because it's like, Four years in of coming back to the school, like, every year, you know, in various uh, fashions. If it's not talking to kids who are going to go to college or if it's talking to kids about, like, 
political engagement and so forth and so on. So I had been coming back to hope. And it was like, dang, I'm I'm banned from the school that really made me. And like a lot of the teachers who were there um, while I was a student, they are the reasons why I'm a community organizer, because they were like, hey, you have to fight for something. And like, this is what we're teaching you is like, don't allow the system to tell you what what is and you have to fight. So it, it, it hurt. But, you know, I believe in the power of those kids and not only kids at Hope, but Robeson, Harper and team. Well, I call it Inglewood. I don't even call it team. I call it Inglewood because that's what it is. It's Inglewood High School. Yeah. The students at Hope just don't get this coverage because Pascal and I and one of our reporters on the day of the national walkout, we were there and there was pretty much no media there except us. Um, and nobody was trying to cover what those students were doing for that national walkout. Well, and that's the problem. Like, John Hope has city championships, has state championships in ba- ba- basketball on their girls' team. Under the time I was there and before, um, and even have, you know, state championships and city championships on debate, which is what I was on. We have titles that exist and for most folks who don't live in Inglewood, don't know what John Hope is. It's a very family-centered high school. It used to be a select enrollment school. And then they changed how they were going to operate when they chose to revamp Inglewood. And that's when they changed Hope from being a select enrollment school to being like a neighborhood school. And that changed the demographic and also changed how they really cared of CPS cared about John Hope. What a lot of folks did not know when they changed that was like the aval- the start of the avalanche for John Hope. And a lot of the kids from Inglewood into flooding John Hope, flooding Hyde Park, flooding these other schools, that changed a lot of what was happening in the communities. What a lot of us did not know was that in a couple of years, in three or four years, houses will be wiped out from 55th on to 61st Street on the other side of the uh the train tracks you know we were paying attention but we didn't have the like words to the, sit there and say like oh the city and the cps is intentionally divesting from us we didn't have that language and a lot of us don't have it now and it's unfortunate that a lot of young kids see it but they don't have the language they don't have people who are in their corner sitting up and saying if you see this happening you see like certain things changing let's fight for it let's raise you up to fight for it and that's what's happening a lot of our kids are are being pushed out into a system that's telling them like you're too young be quiet shut up you know listen to us but then in the case of the parkland kids Stand up, fight, but then it's a bunch of kids that have been fighting across this city, across this country, who are black and brown, who have been fighting for years, decades even, and never gotten that, you know, spotlight and never gotten that push to sit and say, like, these kids are really doing this work. It's like um, only certain messages are really palatable and only a certain type of person, a certain type of organizer is really accepted in that type of mainstream. Like you said, media didn't want to cover a whole lot of the protests when they decided to take the narrative from talking about this really sensational and tragic topic, a school shooting, to the shootings that happen in a lot of these kids' daily lives and um, a lot of the violence and the structural violence that they face. One of the organizers that we talked to um, really beautifully said that that disinvestment is violence as well, yeah. right? It's so this is what I really call it, and it, it's violence, but it's state violence. Um, community is as strong as a school is, and if that school isn't that strong, that community isn't because that school is the anchor of a community. And what has happened, specifically in Ingle, specifically in Roseland, specifically in Austin, in these neighborhoods that I'm mentioning, mentioning. When you destabilize these schools, you're destabilizing these communities. Now, if these schools have not been properly funded to begin with, 
you're already setting these kids up for failure. Mm-hmm. And then you ask the question of, okay, we're going to build a charter school to, you know, accommodate you. But it's not building a charter school. It's actually funding public education as it is. And what they're doing and what CPS has been committing is educational genocide. Mm-hmm. Because if we understand that a lot of these kids, I, I talked to Robeson, I talked to Harper, I talked to John Hope, I talked to kids at Inglewood. Like, yo, if our schools close, we're not going to no other schools. Mm-hmm. Don't expect us to show up on September 1st. We are not going. And what does that do? That pushes more kids into the prison industrial complex. It pushes more kids outside on the block instead of actually getting an education that's culturally relevant to them. Yeah, I mean, like the fact that CPS just wanted to once off close these four schools, open the state of the art school that these students wouldn't even be able to go to. It speaks to that. Like CPS doesn't care about these students. CPS cares about facades, painting these images of things that they're apparently supposedly doing. But when you look at the core and the foundation of it, there's no support for the kids that are losing their schools, you know? Yeah, it does. Now, Robeson is set to close at the end of this year. The Robeson kids said they were tearing down parts of their school in December. So even when they proposed it, they were still taking parts of the school down. So before you even made your real vote, you knew what you were doing. You had that vote set in mind. That new Inglewood High School is going to be a select enrollment high school. So that means there's not even a guarantee that most of the students, the seventh graders, who are seventh grade now are going to actually get into that school next year and when it opens in 2019. But what are we doing about the eighth graders from Inglewood who ain't going to have no public high school come uh, the fall because the phase-out plan states we will not, we'll let you stay there, but we will not allow you to accept any more students. Mm -hmm. So even if Roberson's kids said, you know what, we're going to finish our education in Inglewood, okay, we want to go to Team, we want to go to Harper, we want to go to Rope, we want to go to John Hope, you cannot. And see, the bigger problem that I'm seeing here is that, like you were saying, CPS already kind of had this plan in motion before they even started getting community involvement in it, like they claim they did. But the bigger problem here is that there is no watchdog to CPS. There is nobody there to hold CPS accountable except for pretty much the community and the students, which is so which is why it's so important that at this point the students are standing up and they're saying, "Listen, we see what you're doing and we're going to confront you about it." And I think it's so brave that students in high school, when I think about myself in high school, Honestly, I I don't even know if I would have had the courage to do this, but to see students organizing in the way that they are to really mobilize people and confront their politicians and be like, I'm not going to accept this. It's kind of remarkable, I think. It's really encouraging. Like, what was I doing in high school? I I was on the debate team, too. Uh, Did did policy debate for a few years. But Yeah. yeah, when I was in high school, like... To do all of this work, all of this organizing that the students in Inglewood are doing, I don't think I, I, I could have been up for it. Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't know if I would have been up for it. But again, that just speaks to like where black and brown people stand in this society, you know? Right. Like, why do our children always have to fight? And that was something that in my reporting, I kept hearing from parents, moms that were going up to the podium and just telling the Board of um, Education, like, why do our kids still have to fight this fight every single day. Right. And, you know, it's a conversation Simba saying, like, one, where is it when we're sitting up here having kids battling food deserts, mm-hmm. transit deserts, and all of these other things that compound issues of getting a full education and then you sit there and say, we're going to close your school. Because I lived out south. I live in the hundreds. And I went to Hope. 
And I remember getting accepted to Whitney Young. And I was like, my mother was like, you're not about to wake up that early to go to Whitney Young. You, you're not. You barely want to wake up to go to school now. <laughs> so, and I was like, all right, yeah. I, you know what? I'm going to go to Hope. And I wanted to go to Hope because Hope was a very small school when I was there. Hope had about a thousand students when I was there. And there was not a time that Miss Porter, who sold the crunchy curls at lunchtime, did not know who I was, did not know who half the students was. It wasn't a time when the folks in the attendance office didn't, security didn't, regardless if you was the kid always had to be in the detention room Mm -hmm. or have to be seeing the dean of students. Everyone knew you. Lunch ladies knew you by name, knew what was going on with your life because it was a family oriented. You know, John Hope has this motto called excellence without excuses. And we lived by it. A part of our school song was, I believe in a place called Hope because where education is golden. And that was real for us. You know, we had folks where I knew it was classmates who were homeless on the verge of being homeless. All right, teachers up there buying uniforms, buying backpacks, paying for their paying for their school fees, paying for their prom fees, doing so much. And these were teachers, custodial staff. It was it was so much of a family setting that it was no way that folks were not rooting for you. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's something really important to be said about the numbers, um, the fact that the way that CPS funds schools is based on enrollment. It's kind of It's a backwards logic because the smaller a community is, the tighter knit it can be. You know, Mm -hmm. the more you can invest in a singular student, an individual student, when you have the opportunity to know that student. But if you're going to take students from a school where they all know each other, put them into a school where they're just going to become another number and another statistic. What do you think is going to happen? They're going to get lost in the shuffle. Mm -hmm. I am a kid. I went to a small grammar school. Everyone knew me, you know, and... When you are in a smaller setting, it gives you that chance for folks to know what's going on, know how to accommodate you. And the irony is public education. Oh, my God, you can't. We have to have the fully running school. It has to have at least 30 some kids in class. But I go to a private school right now and they got 15 kids in class with a teacher's aide and a teacher. And they're getting that individualized education. It's like, oh, so Smaller class sizes are only good for your kids because you pay tuition, but it ain't good for ours because it's a public education is a and and really it's supposed to be a public good, but because it's our students, our students don't deserve you know smaller class sizes. Our students don't deserve individualized teaching. All of this and it's and it's contradictory to what a lot of folks sit there and say like we want education to be all of these things, but we don't want it to be at the cost of, you know, whatever thing I'm pushing. And that's the thing about it. You know, and it's unfortunate that most of the time our kids lose out on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you just think about any of this situation, the school closings, even like the the police academy thing, if any of that stuff was happening on the north side in Lakeview, in uh, you know, Wrigleyville, this conversation would be completely different because that would be the locations where people already have that power, where people actually care about those those kids, where those kids, I mean, number one, have other options 
Um, but you're taking in, in this situation, you're taking away this option from a, a neighborhood that doesn't have other options. You know, you're, you're mm-hmm. closing all the public schools, right, replacing it with an, a selective enrollment school that, like you said, most people aren't going to be able to go to. So, I mean, I'm just stretching my brain trying to think like what's going like what's going to happen here, because there's really not any. It seems like it just wasn't a very well thought out plan. Like it, what's no, going to happen it, to it's, those kids? It's, so it's a well thought out plan for them. Um, yeah, yeah, and when right. we think about it, we're like, no, we're, we we have a list of stuff like, nah, this is not going to go well. This is not going to go well. But for them, it's like, OK, that's not our responsibility. Understanding that and understanding that in most ways, the system doesn't care about black kids. You know, I went to John Hope. I had all black teachers, most of from K through 12. See now, even in Hope, that a lot of our black teachers have been essentially wiped out. And that's really unfortunate for the students um, because when you're in a space, and specifically a space of learning, you need folks that look like you, that reflect you, and have the same stories. And when you don't, it, it has an impact of, like, how you're treated in education, how you're treated discipline-wise. It was It's so many things that folks don't put into play. It, it Like, I'm in a space of, like, low-key hurt. But not surprised because Hope was on the original list to be closed in 2013. And Dr. Hines, who was the who was on the board of Ed, board of Ed, who was also on the board of directors at KIPP, she pretty much made a deal and said there and say, okay, we're gonna put this charter school, middle school, in your school. The concept was for KIPP to actually graduate its students, and they were supposed to go to Hope. That did not happen. A lot of the KIPP kids end up leaving. A lot of them did not say a KIPP bloom. Um, and, you know, that's that's the reality of it. And you look at this movement that the students have really been at the center of. Um, it hasn't been for nothing. Like you said, in 2013, Hope was one of the schools that was slated to close. Um, this past December, Hope was set to close in June, right? Um, but all of the organizing, all of the labor that people put in um, against the CPS board and against the mayor, um, the, the school closings are still happening. But it's a major victory that we've been able to get more time. That's the thing that really was so impressive when we were reporting on these stories is just that like these students they just kept going they just keep rallying and they just keep being like no we're not going to be disincentivized and I think that's so important because once you start to lose your hope you know that's when that's when they win that's when they get to take everything away from you yeah it it, it really is and you know the kids are working under the model somewhat of diet and you know they gave diet a phase out plan the same way they gave hope team and you know Rope, uh, team of Harper and the kids are re-envisioning the kid when CPS made their proposal in February changed their proposal the kids came down and were like all right we're gonna write a list of stuff that we want this is a list of stuff that we want you to invest in if you saying you got eight million dollars let's see where that money is and like let put your money where your mouth is and these kids are re-envisioning what they want to see even if it's not them in it you know they they say like hey we want to see the school last and it's not about you know all of the politics they want to have a place because at the end of the day if we don't give these kids a fighting chance and these kids have not been given the full fighting chance that they need to um to be in the spotlight to be given a voice and I'm grateful for Miracle. I'm grateful for Jakaya. I'm grateful Imani um, from Hope, which are three kids who have consistently been coming and coming and doing the work. And like sometimes they were like, yo, I'm tired and feel like I'm pulling teeth. But I'm like, yo, 
y'all got this. And they've been driven to do that work, and I'm so grateful for them. Um, and them envisioning what they want to see at John Hope mm-hmm. and what they want to envision and seeing in their neighborhoods. And they have that power and they understand it. And, you know, and I hope it's one of, one of the things I hope that it spreads like cancer mm-hmm. and can be a strong influence for our black kids on the south and west sides. And our black and brown sit there and say, like, yo, if we didn't fight, we would have been getting chopping block on June 21st. Mm-hmm. But they fought and they're showing that they have power and they have people power and that the youth are really the future and that we have to be engaged. We have to really push them. And something that I think the students are also demonstrating is that this is bigger than them. You know, for a lot of them, it's generational. They're thinking about their little brothers and their little sisters and what the future holds for them. And I think that that should encourage all of us as adults in this community, as members of this community, to keep pushing. Because if we're expecting that from our 14, 15, 16-year-olds, then, my dude, if you're 32 and you're sitting at home and you're just reading this story, please get off your butt and start mobilizing because this is bigger than all of us. Yeah, I'm waiting to see what 2019 is going to look like because they're really engaged. They're, they were like, yo, we're going to do a voter rights drive. We're going we're gonna to push for this. Um, but one of the things that really does need to have a conversation is that in this city, we do not have a local like elected school board. So all of those who are on the school board are not elected entities. They are picked by Rom. They are picked by the mayor. So they are friends. They are people who he he trusts to do his bidding. So when we have folks who who are trusted by the mayor to do their bidding, that's not for the people because the people will tell you like, Yo, you're closing our schools and then not really investing in anything else. We have 50 schools that close. But then we have schools that were closed before then that are vacant buildings that exist as eyesores. And, not, and you know, the community doesn't have access to those. Some of those buildings are going up for $200 million. Who has money for that? And you're talking about closing a school in a low-income neighborhood when the, where the, the median average for income is $30,000. Nobody has that money. Nobody has that capital to re-envision what they want to see. And these kids have that power and they they have this fire and it's so great. And, you know, I talk with some of the alumni who I'm cool with and still kick it with. And I'm like, yo, remember when we used to crack jokes about I believe in a place called Hope and we'll make jokes about the song? I'm like, yo, these kids are embodying everything that that song was and what does it mean to be a student of John Hope and to keep that legacy alive. It's such a beautiful thing to see that those students have really risen to that challenge. But it's also, you know, you don't want to see your kids grow up so so early, you know. It shouldn't, kids shouldn't have to fight that fight. It's such a big fight for them to go up against. It's, um, it's daunting and it's scary, but you're right. It's, it's very, very beautiful to see them embodying um, everything that they were taught to be. But it's the fight that they will win. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. I have hope in that, and uh, I have hope in the students of these schools. Thank you, Rachel. Thank Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about this. And, uh, yeah, that's a wrap. Thank you for riding the CTA Blue Line. This stop is Girl on the Train. Before coming to the studio this afternoon, Chelsea Berry and I took to the CTA to talk to the humans of Chicago. 
We wanted to discuss how it feels being a girl on the train and to understand how people perceive that experience. In a city where so many rely so heavily on public transportation, stories of harassment and violence are all too commonplace. Starting in Lawndale and ending in Bucktown, we traversed the blue, red, and brown lines and asked people to share their thoughts and experiences. Almost everyone had accepted that being a girl on the train is risky. Almost everyone had a story to tell. I'm Catherine. I have seen some things on this train. Oh, my Lanta. Oh, I've seen a guy smash a window out. I, I come I'm a bartender, so I come home like three o'clock sometimes in the morning. But he was talking to me and asking me pretty much on a date. So, I mean, you have to just kind of ignore him. Hopefully you'll get the hint, but... Hey, Melissa Gordils lived in Chicago my whole life. Um, I think the worst situation that I had on the train, this old man asked me to marry him. <laughs> I was literally sitting next to him for all of about five seconds before he was just like, you are so beautiful, let's get married, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, um, sure. You know, like, you never know what's going to set somebody off. You know, like, if you say no, like, I don't know if he was about to, like, just go crazy, you know? So I was like, yes, of course, I'll marry you. <laughs> like, it was so weird. It was so creepy. And I saw him again, like, a couple of weeks later, and I was just, like, trying really hard not to make eye contact with him. I always carry a weapon. I always have mace or a knife on me forever. Wherever I go. Yeah. You have to. Especially being a woman on the CTA, like, so scary. I always feel like I have to be with something. So I think what we've learned is that women are taught to ride the train with, with armor, whether that's pepper spray or a human on the other end of the phone or a resting bitch face even. Um, and so we learn to kind of violate our own boundaries just for safety and survival. Yeah, I mean, like the funny thing that someone said that I'm like, this is so relatable and most women probably do this is kind of just going along with whatever is happening or however someone is approaching you because you don't want to set them off, you know. And I think it's so disturbing that we have kind of been taught that kind of response, like you will not stand up for yourself because you don't want to risk setting somebody else off who's already disturbing you. Like you have to be more careful about how you're going to treat them and how you're making them and feel so that you're safe. I think that's really problematic. You have to, you know, just play along with them, like living in fantasy until your stop comes or because even if you do like decide to, you know, move to another cart, who's to say that this person won't follow you? Sometimes I'll just be sitting on the train, like just by myself, just minding my business, probably like most women. And just I'll just be approached by some of the strangest people. And it's like, maybe, I don't know, I'll get a sense that maybe they just don't want to harm anyone, but they just really just need someone to talk to. But I mean, you're on a train. Like, it's not your responsibility to be this person's listening ear. Like, like yeah, like, let's be cool and, like, care for each other. But if someone's sitting there with headphones in, like, clearly they don't want to talk to you. Do I really care about what the other person is saying most of the time? Not really, but... You know, you don't know what people are going through, and it is not your responsibility, but I just really wanted to stay safe. So I think we've lost the line between talking to someone and harassment here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just having a conversation with someone is a lot different than, you know, I want to marry you, you're so beautiful. And then on the flip side, if you're a woman, you have to worry about your own safety in rejecting this person because men are not taught to deal with rejection and they they feel so entitled to your time and your attention that it becomes a safety issue. And I think for me personally, it's it's been most striking when I've told stories that I've been proud of in my like aggressive boundary setting with men, you know, and the responses are from my parents or even from women my own age, like, oh, well, 
you know, he might have followed you. You should you should be more careful. You know, you shouldn't be so aggressive with men because it is a safety issue. And that's sad to me. Let's just say, like, it's not a male that's wanting to, you know, bother this person. It's a female. We're the same gender. How do I set the standard, set the tone? With people in general, you don't know what's going to set someone off. You don't know what's going on in their mind. I think it's always kind of like a fine line of getting yourself out of the situation safely, um, bottom line. But it's different when you're being targeted specifically as a woman. When they're talking about your physical appearance or, you know, wanting to make plans, there's a difference. And you can tell when that line is being breached. So, I mean, I still think as a survival tactic, that's necessary regardless of what the genders are. But it's a little bit scarier when it is like a predator victim situation. Going kind of even deeper and going back to the Aziz Ansari testimony and everything that happened with that, you know, you can go and say that technically he didn't do anything wrong. Same with some of these cases. But the thing is, men aren't even taught to look for enthusiastic consent. And that's kind of the bottom line. If this girl isn't leaning forward into you and, and asking you more questions. That nonverbal communication. Right. If it's not enthusiastic, then it's a no. And, and they're so used to just taking whatever they can get from us that they don't even look for the response. The responses don't matter. My name is Jenny H. 55. There were various times where I experienced harassment. But, you know, men like putting their hands on me in crowded trains and so on. But it hasn't happened in a while. What I've seen here sometimes is people experiencing mild forms of harassment. I think with that clip, I was just really struck by the way that she threw in the line about being groped. She just said, you know, men put their hands on you, but it hasn't happened in a while. Um, and I think it's important to note how desensitized we are to sexual harassment. To me, it seems like we let our these lesser violations kind of go and we don't really even have time to process our trauma because we can't call it trauma. What is what is trauma when being on a train? Like, how do you experience trauma on a train? I mean, I think it's going to be different for every person. But I think the biggest signifier of that would just be like, if you feel like you were put in a situation where some sort of physical or emotional boundary was crossed. And like, yeah, some people will think about like, being groped or like lightly touched on the train as a small trauma because of how society has classified it. But at the end of the day, somebody encroached on your space and on your and in, into your bubble. Um, and I think that a person is allowed to, to leave that situation and feel like it was traumatic. A lot of times women are told that certain traumas are, are lesser than others because they shouldn't be so sensitive or whatever. But like if someone is impeaching on your space, you have every right to be offended by it. And I think that we need to stop telling women that like some things are worse than others. If someone touches you, looks at you or talks to you in a way that you are not comfortable with, that that is harassment at the end of the day. That's just that. I think for me, there's been a number of situations where you couldn't really say he put his hands on me or, or, you know, he said something specific. But I've walked away with my heart racing just from fear, you know, of looking back over my shoulder and making sure that I'm not being followed. That's just kind of being painfully aware of my status in life. And that's traumatic. If you kind of minimize it to a lesser trauma, then you don't really process it. And it just kind of builds up. Uh, Danny Parkins, I'm 31 years old. Well, I obviously am not a woman right. on the train. My wife takes the train uh, to and from work, and I always just tell her to, you know, 
be aware if uh, she's coming home late at night to take a car. It's absolutely worth like the extra couple of bucks uh, in order to ensure her safety. She has mace. I tell her not to wear, you know, like maybe one earbud in, one earbud out, just to have some awareness. Like the train gets a bad rap in some parts of the city. I think overall it is a fairly safe experience, but it's pretty easy for me to say as a member of the privileged class, if you will. But uh, so I don't know what it's like to be targeted as a victim, but I know that my wife uh, has a good amount of vil- uh, diligence and diligence in terms of like staying aware of what could happen on the train. But I personally have never seen anything too bad. But I know there was a robbery uh, at our stop at night and she was, you know, and it was on the news and she was just like, oh wow, it even happened, you know, in our north side neighborhood or something like that. And I was like, yeah, of course it could happen anywhere. So you just have to be aware. So for me, this was evidence that male privilege is thinking the solution to sexual harassment is changing women's behavior um, rather than changing men's behavior. I mean, that man was literally listing all the things that he tells his wife to do. Um, And I guess my question going forward for men um, is what they're going to talk to their male friends about, what they're going to change within themselves. And also just the comment about if you have the extra money to spare on a car, you should spend it. That definitely came from a place of privilege. There's a lot of women and and people that can't afford any other option, and so they have to deal with the harassment. Because men on the train, like, they, they really aren't, you know, a target. Guys need to come together and create, like, this, I don't know, some sort of space where they can talk about these issues because I just think the transportation isn't the problem. It's the guys who feel so entitled to talk to women. I think that guys just just people need to tell each other to just stop viewing women as like these prey, vulnerable, weak, gazelle type animals. Like property. We are not like property. We are not these small little animals that need to be taken care of. We can take care of ourselves. And I think the bigger thing is just that people need to stop looking at women like we are prey. We are not prey. We are people. Full stop. And we exist in the world for reasons other than pleasing men. Yeah. I know I do. First name is Julie. It's from Chicago, Illinois, the west side. One experience, I was standing at the uh, bus stop. I was at the red line on 69th. Young lady had a, a man following her. She was crying. She was like hysterical, like didn't know what to do. So she didn't want to go nowhere until the police came or a riot came. And the man was standing there and he claimed she threw a rock, but I don't think that's a, a reason to chase someone down. So you have to be aware. This kind of brings to light that we we try to rationalize violence against women with what their previous behavior was or with the she was asking for it narrative. Um, And I think bottom line is it it happens no matter where we are, no matter how much attention we're paying, no matter what we're wearing. um, And it's not okay regardless of those situations. So when we as women try to rationalize it, I think that's kind of our downfall. Um, And then that gives way for men to rationalize it as well. I think like patrolling wise, on the car, off the car, you know, and then ca- camera watching the um, tapes and stuff like that should be more of a, a push, a push for, you know, in order to secure all of our safeties. Kevin, 55. Uh, one this time um, a man was uh, being a little, not a little, it's being very abusive to a female passenger. And I 
I saw it, and I went and got the conductor. And he came over right away and put a stop to it. So it, you, know, you just got to watch out for people. My wife has been, she thought, bumped up against uh, inappropriately. Uh, so I, I know what happens. So not cool. There are a lot of men who see who see these things going on. They don't say anything. Like, just say something. And like I said before, just there needs to be a space where men can, like, openly talk about these things. And if you're a guy and you're talking about this with your friends and they're probably trying to shut you up or something, like, you need a new set of friends. Honestly. Get it together. Yeah, I think the the see something, say something thing for, like, violence threats, but I think it's really actually relevant to this conversation, um, specifically on the train. You know, if you're seeing something in action, like the the one guy that we talked to got the conductor, kind of intervene. Also, again, within the realms of your own personal safety, but um, as women, we should say things to each other just to, to validate these experiences, you know, to help us deal with our trauma and then... For the men out there, I'm hoping that you're talking to your male friends and letting them know that boundaries are set for a reason. So I guess, like, my concern is, like, how do we go about this, you know, in a way that is that is that is very, like, um, protective to ourselves, like, without even having to, you know, carry, like, mace or a knife or something like that. Let's say if our route is a train every day, you know, like, how do we go about that circumstance you know, how do we go about that, that dealing with that trauma every day when we're on a train? I mean, I think talking about it like this is definitely the start, recognizing it for what it is. So I think we don't even do that at this point. So kind of learning what to call out and when to call it out is at least a step. And I also think that, like, we need to teach the behavior that that is acceptable on, like, the opposite end. So instead of telling women, like, tell your story this kind of way or, like, do A, B, or C— Maybe we need to tell men that, like, honestly, you might think that it's cool that you're telling that girl that she's beautiful, but, like, what if she doesn't want to hear it? You know, like, check in on people's body languages, check in with how people are engaging with you, and, like, gauge whether this person even wants this quote-unquote compliment, because you might be thinking you saying to this girl, you're beautiful, I want to marry you, is a good thing, but you're actually disturbing her space in doing so. This stop is one minute of love. In order to connect with someone, you need more than news. Here's a little bit of love. Is peace still peace if the heat comes from a steel peace grip by the hands of a mankind's beast? Can peace be instilled in a community where the air we breathe is essential to our immunity? Can peace bring us unity, enough unity to end all funerals and make the world safer for you and me? Can peace be peace to peace? What is love? Is love not a warm embrace to those whose spirit cares to erase the hate from the eyes of the beholder who only sees what they allow themselves to face? Can love be more than just a word in the world of color steering away from black and white paint, allowing our community to stand tall and not faint? Spread love, show love, and let love reign. Without hurt, there is no happiness. Stealing, killing, all have one thing in common, our community's feelings. Is it key to the opening process of our world healing, keeping us spiritually, mentally, and physically strengthened, placing our pain aside and focusing on our condition? For happiness, we will fight and we will finish. This is the final stop as far as this podcast goes. The Real Shy is a program of Free Spirit Media, which provides media arts education to young people on both West and South Side of Chicago. 
We'd like to thank our guest today, Rachel Williams. we also like to thank Daniel Kisslinger and Damon Williams from Ergo, who helped us produce this show. A special thanks to Cards Against Humanity for sharing their studio as well. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Real Shy Youth. Until next time, thanks for riding with the Real Shy. If you've ever ridden the CTA, you've definitely seen an ad for what we're about to advertise, but consider this a CTA ad in audio form. You should check out The Second City. You can find your funny this week with a $20 improv drop-in class at The Second City Training Center in Chicago. Your first drop-in is on us. Use the code TESTDRIVE for a free improv drop-in any Sunday at 7 p.m. For more info, go to secondcity.com TC. Or call 312-664-3959 to register.